September 11th, 1997. Larry Gibbs on Reconstruction, the Legacy of the Civil War. And speak on Reconstruction, uh, the Forgotten Legacy of the Civil War. Larry's our past president. He's also the lifeblood of the South Suburban Roundtable, having sustained that group almost single-handedly for a number of years. And he's currently an officer in the Salt Creek Roundtable and moving up. So, Larry, you know this better than I do. <laughs> oh, thank, you. thank you, Rob. Um, I hope that uh, all of you get a chance to go down to Wilson's Creek Battlefield, which is in pristine condition, and uh, see Tom Sweeney and his wife, Karen. They've got a tremendous museum just north of uh, Wilson's Creek Battlefield. So uh, if you ever do get a chance to uh, go down there, uh, please see them. Uh, tonight, uh, I have a uh, uh, ironic twist in this whole deal. When I was president, or actually when I was vice president two years ago, I was trying to line up speakers. And I wanted to have one speaker dealing with reconstruction, which is uh, one of my favorite subjects. So I tried uh, Kenneth Stamp uh, in Berkeley, and uh, he declined basically because of age. I asked Eric Foner in uh, Columbia University, and he said uh, for some reasons he couldn't come. And I asked three or four other people. Uh, who were noted um, scholars on Reconstruction to, uh, to attend, and all of them declined. And uh, so I'm either very courageous or very foolish in giving a speech on Reconstruction. Um, so um, the thing is that uh, I think they declined because of the fact that they feel like most of our roundtable members are only interested in the military aspects. They don't really care. They, the, the idea, the impression is that... Uh, most Civil War roundtables don't really care about the uh, causes of the war. They don't care about the role of women in the war. They don't care about the uh, role of medicine or anything like that. They only care about um, the uh, military maneuvers, the strategies, the tactics, the generals, and the battles, and so on. So I want to uh, try to broaden our horizon tonight. Um, I've spoken to several roundtables uh, dealing with this subject, so I should be accustomed to it by now. Uh, and uh, also, uh, I want to mention the fact that uh, this is the first speech on Reconstruction that this group has heard since 1974. Um, I think Harold Hyman talked about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1974, and that's the last speech that was primarily devoted to any aspect about Reconstruction. But tonight I'm going to speak on Reconstruction in a, uh, in a broader sense than simply one specific aspect of uh, Reconstruction. Reconstruction is the other side of the coin of the Civil War era. It's the period uh, which demonstrated the res illustrated the results of the Civil War after a devastating number of deaths which Americans inflicted upon themselves during the Civil War. Uh, I'm going to discuss uh, this uh, maligned uh, subject, uh, or almost totally ignored subject by most Civil War buffs. Uh, my topic is uh, entitled uh, Reconstruction, the Forgotten Legacy of the Civil War. And uh, as I say, Reconstruction is the opposite uh, side of the coin. You have these two uh, great American epics, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and they bear an odd resemblance to each other because usually we think of the Civil War as a glorious time of gallantry for noble self-sacrifice and idealism. Uh, here you have the truly great heroes, the stalwart Stonewall, the martyred Lincoln, Christ-like Lee, the persevering Grant, the uh, steadfast, uh, loyal Jefferson Davis, and the sordid side of the Civil War is usually ignored. That is uh, the graft and the corruption of the war. Uh, note uh, Simon Cameron in that uh, situation. The needless loss of lives, the horrors of army hospitals, 
the prison camps. Instead, most of us concentrate on the two sides of the warriors, the Yankees and the rebels, fighting for what they thought were just causes. And so most of us probably know more about the Battle of Wilson's Creek or uh, the Battle of uh, Westport, where I was last week, uh, the Battle of Lexington, uh, Missouri. We know more about these individual battles that are very small rather than, uh, let's say, Thaddeus Stevens or the Black Codes or the Freedmen's Bureau. And uh, as I said, only five of the 565 previous meetings have been on uh, Reconstruction at all. And uh, so I'm trying to uh, correct that a little bit. Also, Ken Burns' series on the Civil War only had about 13 minutes on Reconstruction. So uh, as a result, uh, Reconstruction gets uh, almost no mention whenever the Civil War is studied. Ironically, a couple years ago, we had Richard Kern and David Donald back-to-back. They're both very noted uh, Reconstruction historians, and neither one of them talked about Reconstruction. So uh, as a result, uh, I'm uh, here to uh, try to correct that tonight. Now, why have historians of the Civil War era virtually ignored this forgotten legacy of Reconstruction? And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, Reconstruction deals with race uh, to a great extent, and a lot of people don't want to talk about race. Uh, our country is pretty well divided about race, as the recent uh, O.J. Simpson trials indicate, uh, and various other uh, uh, celebrity trials have also indicated the same thing. So we don't uh, usually, when Americans disagree or have an argument about something, they usually try to compromise or, or change the subject. Also, as I said, the Civil War, the Reconstruction period doesn't deal with anything uh, uh, dealing with the military except for the military occupation of the South. And as a result, uh, that is uh, uh, one of the reasons why Reconstruction doesn't have the popularity of uh, the Civil War period. And also, I think uh, part of the reason is that the first interpretation of Reconstruction indicated that Reconstruction was very sordid, a very terrible period of time, and there wasn't anything good that came out of Reconstruction. So uh, I'm, what I'm going to do tonight is to briefly summarize Reconstruction, and then I'm going to go into the uh, historiography of Reconstruction, which is a uh, bloody battleground among historians. Um, and of course, I also want to mention the fact that many of our opinions about Reconstruction are shaped by movies. And uh, one of the first movies that dealt with Reconstruction to a significant degree was Birth of a Nation, which is looked upon as a classic in um, many uh, classes in college that deal with movies. And it did have all kinds of deals with uh, close-ups and fade-outs and various uh, techn technological aspects about movies. But uh, if you've uh, seen The Birth of a Nation, which is a silent movie made in 1915, Woodrow Wilson said that this was, uh, lightning uh, this was history struck by lightning. This was the way it really was. But if you ever have it or have watched it, you'll find out it's extremely racist. And uh, it makes the uh, KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, to be heroes. That uh, they were there to uh, support the uh, beleaguered uh, white Southerners. And so as a result, um, this is the way Woodrow Wilson felt that uh, the history should be about Reconstruction. Uh, the other movie that uh, deals with Reconstruction to some degree, of course, is Gone with the Wind. And uh, that has some various aspects which may be accurate, may not be accurate. But uh, these are the movies that usually give us an idea about what Reconstruction was about. Uh, so now I want to present just a brief synopsis of uh, Reconstruction. I'm sure that uh, 
This is uh, the most popular topic among uh, all the Civil War Roundtable members here tonight. So we'll uh, go into that. Uh, the debate over Reconstruction began during the Civil War. There were four major questions that the country had to address. One, on what terms should the defeated Confederacy be reunited with the Union? Uh, one theory was by Charles Sumner. He had the idea about a state suicide uh, theory. The only trouble with that is that if you said that the 11 states committed suicide when they tried to secede and break away from their own government, uh, you would more or less be admitting the legitimacy and the legality of uh, secession itself. So Charles Sumner soon withdrew that uh, state suicide theory, but they came up with a conquered uh, territory theory and so on. Uh, second uh, question that had to be addressed was who should, be, who should establish these terms, the radical Congress or the president? Now the radicals in Congress were not monolithic. They were not all believing that the South should be severely punished, but some of the radicals were Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, Benjamin Wade. Uh, these are probably the best known. Um, Edwin uh, McMaster Stanton was also considered to be a radical, but he uh, was sort of in the background as uh, time went on. And the president during Reconstruction, of course, uh, almost as soon as the war was over, was Andrew uh, Johnson. Andrew Johnson took over at the, uh, after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, of course, on April 15, 1865. And uh, he turned out to be about the worst possible person to be president at that time. Uh, the hindsight has turned, out to, turned this out to be true, I think. Uh, another question that the country had to address, what should be the situation for the Southern whites returning from the battlefield? And of course, the last question, what should be the place of blacks in the political and social life of the South? Now, uh, Lincoln in his second inaugural turned his thoughts to reconstruction, or reconciliation, excuse me. And uh, he had the phrase, of course, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Uh, Lincoln's lenient plan was a 10% plan. This was actually presented on December, in December of 1863, called the Proclamation of uh, Amnesty and Reconstruction. But in that, uh, they had a policy of very lenient, very lenient amnesty for the uh, Confederate uh, uh, troops if they uh, surrendered and so on. But also, the 10% plan said that 10% of the Southern voters in a state from the 1860 uh, rolls of uh, election would um, be the only amount that would be required for that state to be readmitted to the Union. All right, well, this sounds very good, and uh, of course, they, you know, Lincoln wanted to get the country back on an even queue as soon as possible. However, the radical Republicans in Congress uh, sought to defeat this program. Uh, the radicals uh, were motivated by hatred of the South, by selfish uh, political motivations in uh, many cases, but uh, this was according to the Southern whites especially. The radicals wanted to punish the South severely, uh, at least uh, according to the white Southerners and uh, people who were former Confederate leaders or former Confederate leader, uh, former Confederate soldiers. The radical plan for Reconstruction was presented in 1864 called the Wade Davis Bill, and it was somewhat similar to uh, Lincoln's 10% plan, except that the uh, Wade Davis Bill said a majority of Southerners in the 1860 election rolls should uh, approve of the United States government and uh, support the United States Constitution before that state should be readmitted. But the Wade Davis bill was killed with a pocket veto by Lincoln in uh, 1864. 
Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's uh, successor, began a period of presidential reconstruction soon after the war was over. And his plan included the following. He wanted to pardon all the southern whites except Confederate leaders and wealthy planters. Johnson uh, was uh, definitely against the wealthy planters, but the radical Republicans didn't know it at the beginning of radical reconstruction, uh, or I should say the beginning of the presidential reconstruction, but Andrew Johnson was also very racist. Uh, he was very racist against the uh, four million freedmen. Johnson also would, uh, if he is, his plan went through, he would appoint provisional governors. Uh, he outlined steps where new state governments would be created. These governments were required to abolish slavery, that is, approve the 13th Amendment. They were required to repudiate secession and give up on a Confederate debt, and that was it. What Johnson was trying to do was to carry on what he perceived was Lincoln's very lenient policy toward uh, uh, reconstruction of the, uh, of the South. When the Southern elections restored many of the plantation owners to power in late 1865, Johnson did not change his program. He felt he should pursue this lenient program that Lincoln wanted. And uh, at this period of time, Northerners did not have any interest or zeal to deal, deal with reconstruction. You had a period of about six or eight months where hardly any anything was going on. There was a vacuum of power, a vacuum of leadership. The Radicals Republicans didn't really take the initiative from about May of 1865 until December of 1865. And uh, Andrew Johnson uh, didn't really do anything either. And as a result, the Southern whites said, well, you know, there's a vacuum here. Let's try to regain as much power that we had before the war as, as we can. And that's essentially what happened. Uh, so there was, uh, if Lincoln had lived, there would have been uh, you know, a completely uh, different scenario, perhaps. But the uh, point was that he was, he was uh, unfortunately assassinated. Many Northerners were outraged at the Southern elections. That the Southern uh, in these Southern elections, they they reelected uh, some of the uh, Confederate leaders and officers. And uh, Alexander Stevens was was elected, and uh, there was at that time uh, they felt there was no rule or law against that. But the Southerners felt that they were dealing fairly with the former slaves, and they generally accepted the outcome of the Civil War in good faith. This is what the South uh, and the Southern whites felt. Northern radicals were also upset with not only with the elections of uh, 1865, but they're also upset with the Black Codes, which were passed by some of these uh, legislatures in the South. And the Black Codes more or less tried to restore slavery about as soon as possible. For example, these laws required blacks to sign yearly labor contracts. They declared unemployed blacks to be vagrants. Blacks could not serve on juries. They could not carry weapons, testify against whites or marry whites. They had curfews and needed permits to travel. Southern governments did allow blacks to legally marry, own property, sue in court, and go to school. But a lot of these other restrictions only applied to the blacks, the four million blacks. The Southern whites felt that they were more than fair with these laws, but the radicals protested vehemently against them and eventually voided them. So he had a struggle between uh, the radical Republicans and the Southern whites about who was going to control the uh, Reconstruction policies. Congress in December of 1865 met and refused to seat the Southern whites who had been elected. Uh, in early 1866, Congress passed and sent to Johnson bills known as the Freedmen's Bureau and the Civil Rights Bills. And this is where the Radical Republicans really started to lock horns with uh, President Andrew Johnson. The Freedmen's Bureau uh, was a federal government agency to oversee the transition from slavery to freedmen, or freedom, uh, for the emancipated slaves. Uh, 
and uh, essentially food, clothing, shelter, and schools were provided for both races, uh, for both the poor whites and for the four million freedmen. And this, as far as I know, is probably the first uh, example of a welfare program that the United States government has initiated. The radicals also supported the Civil Rights Bill of 1866. This bill was designed to guarantee uh, federal protection for freed slaves and to invalidate the black codes. For the first time in American history, uh, it had been asserted uh, for the right of the federal government to intervene in state affairs to protect the rights of citizens and the first determination of what uh, an American citizenship really uh, dealt with. All citizens had equal rights regardless of race, according to the Civil Rights Bill of 1866. Well, Andrew Johnson felt that uh, this was... Uh, this is going too far. He vetoed both of these bills, the Freedmen's Bureau and the Civil Rights Bill. Both of these bills were overridden by the uh, Radical Republican Congress. And uh, when he did this, uh, Johnson was throwing more and more senators and members of the House of Representatives into the radical column. As I said, the radicals were uh, not uh, in complete control of Congress uh, until uh, Andrew Johnson started to veto these various bills. And then the average person, the average senator, and average uh, congressman felt that this was this was going too far, and they had to start giving more help to the uh, freedmen. Uh, after a year of bitter controversy, the radicals restored, uh, 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 resorted to tactics which won overwhelming victories in the 1866 uh, congressional elections, and the radicals gained in power. At this period of time, uh, in 1866, you also had a lot of turmoil going on in the country. In Memphis and New Orleans, you had riots. Uh, where a lot of blacks, uh, or quite a few blacks, were killed. Forty, uh, Forty-six blacks were killed in Memphis in May of 1866. In July 1866, uh, 35 blacks were killed in New Orleans in another uh, riot uh, where the southern whites just could not accept the fact that the blacks were treated as uh, equals. On August 28, 1866, uh, Andrew Johnson started his uh, infamous swing around the circle of northern cities uh, trying to... Uh, get more support for this uh, election, which turned out to be a disaster for him. And uh, he started calling uh, various people all kinds of names. He called Thaddeus Stevens the Judas. He, uh, when people were chanting, why not hang uh, Jefferson Davis? Uh, he got uh, vehement and said, why not hang Thaddeus Davis and uh, Wendell Phillips? And so he became, uh, he became more and more intransigent, more and more adamant that he was right and that the radicals were wrong. And also at this time, in 1866, in Pulaski, Tennessee, the Ku Klux Klan was started, which was a terrorist uh, white uh, organization trying to uh, control, uh, try to control Reconstruction policies through terrorism and intimidation. Uh, by the way, at this time, the Republicans were the ones who wanted more government intervention, uh, but uh, Southern whites saw it was a play for votes. But you have an ironic twist here: that the Republicans are the ones that. Uh, were voting for the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, which is an early stage of a welfare program, and also the Republicans are voting for civil rights legislation here, uh, especially the radical Republicans. Okay, now uh, you have the final stages at hand. Uh, the radicals put the South under military occupation. The military occupation was 50,000 U.S. troops in the southern states at the beginning of uh, Reconstruction, and that gradually dwindled down to about 20,000 at the end of Reconstruction in 1877, and that was those 20,000 were mostly in major cities, such as uh, oh, we have uh, New Orleans and Richmond and uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, 
Uh, also, um, the, at this time, you have the uh, 14th Amendment uh, being passed in uh, 1868. The 14th Amendment uh, simply said that the, all citizens, regardless of race, should be given equal rights protection and due process. And the, fifth, the 15th Amendment was passed in 1870, which said basically that uh, the, all citizens should be entitled to the right to vote. All male citizens over 21 will be given the right to vote regardless of race and so on. So these uh, were some of the pieces of legislation that the radicals uh, got through uh, the Congress and the state legislatures. Um, by the way, as far as the way that the uh, states were readmitted, they were readmitted if they came up with a um, legitimate state legislature that could be approved by the Congress and also the 14th Amendment would have to be passed, uh, would have to be approved by that state legislature. And that was all that was required for a state to be readmitted. And I think Georgia was the last state to be readmitted of the uh, 11 former Confederate states in uh, 1870. So all the states had been readmitted to the Union by 1870. Okay, um, the Southerners who cooperated with uh, federal authorities are called scalawags. And the Northerners who cooperated are called carpetbaggers. Um, by the way, I, I teach a class at uh, Prairie State on the Civil War and Reconstruction, and one of my students brought in an actual carpet bag from uh, this uh, period of, uh, of the uh, Reconstruction period. And their only interest, according to the Southern whites, that is the carpetbaggers and scalawags' only interest was greed and or political gain with the radical Republicans. Um, the radicals at, uh, in 1868 impeached but did not remove Andrew Johnson as president. Now, they only had uh, less than a year of Andrew Johnson's presidency in all likelihood anyhow, but they wanted to prove that the, the Congress, especially the radical Republicans in the Congress, would have control of Reconstruction policy even if Johnson had been defeated in the election of 1868. So the, um, the, the radicals pushed for the uh, impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and he was impeached. Impeachment is simply an accusation of wrongdoing by, the House by a majority of the House representatives. It's uh, sort of analogous to the uh, grand jury investigation. And then the trial is done by the Senate, where you have to have two-thirds votes of the Senate to remove uh, a person in the um, uh, executive or the judicial branch from that office. So Andrew Johnson was, imp was impeached. A, over a majority of uh, members of the House of Representatives didn't impeach him, but by one vote he was not removed. They had 35 senators that said he should be removed, and um, he, uh, there was only, uh, they only had 35 instead of 36, so he was not removed. Uh, nine of the 11 charges against Andrew Johnson dealt with the Tenure of Office Act, which simply said that the Congress passed his Tenure of Office Act over Johnson's veto, which said that a person, that said that uh, a president could not fire his own cabinet members. Later on, this was proved unconstitutional, but at this time, uh, what happened basically was that Johnson removed Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War, and uh, the, uh, the radical Republicans thought that was terrible, so they had this impeachment proceeding against, uh, against uh, the Andrew Johnson. Uh, and uh, he still stayed on as president, however, and then in the election of 1868, uh, Republican Ulysses S. Grant was elected president, and there was a lot of corruption uh, going on during this period of time, both in Grant's administration and in the New York City uh, administration, and also there was some a lot of corruption going on in uh, some of these Reconstruction governments. 
There were 600 blacks that were elected to state offices or the uh, United States Congress uh, from the South. And um, most, many of these were untrained or uneducated blacks because, of course, under slavery they were not supposed to be educated. But there were also some free blacks who were elected. Okay, the story ends with the ultimate triumph of the white Southern Democrats, and they call themselves the Redeemers. They had, uh, their cause had been redeemed by 1877. Uh, these white uh, Democrats organized to drive blacks, carpetbaggers, scalawags, and the military-occupied uh, uh, U.S. Army out of power. And uh, they did that primarily with the election of 1876. Samuel Tilden's a Democrat. He runs against Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican. There, uh, it's a long story, but essentially uh, the Electoral College had some problems with three states, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina. And uh, essentially there was a deal made uh, where Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican, was elected president if he would uh, take all the uh, U.S.-occupied uh, uh, armed forces out of the South. And so by 1877, the Reconstruction was over in the South, and uh, many white Southerners regained their territory that they lost during the Civil War, or other white Southerners uh, gained that uh, territory. There was uh, very little land reform going on during Reconstruction. Uh, just a little bit, maybe 20,000 acres in that area between uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, Savannah, Georgia. Now, uh, I want to explain a little bit about what uh, historiography is. As I say, that was just a thumbnail sketch of a synopsis of Reconstruction. Uh, it's very difficult to go over all this in, in uh, this period of 12 years in a very few minutes. But uh, I think uh, as interesting as Reconstruction is, is the historiography surrounding Reconstruction. Uh, the uh, period of Reconstruction has been fought on the battleground of historiography. And historiography is the methodology of historical study. When historians view a particular character or era with a strong consensus, an interpretation or school of thought has been determined. Sometimes a revision takes place and overturns or changes the previous interpretation. The Reconstruction era has properly been called the bloody battleground of uh, American historians because of the struggle over what really happened during Reconstruction. And there's been quite a change in uh, the historiography over this period of time of uh, Reconstruction. Now, in historiography, you can have all kinds of uh, different uh, events, different people that where historians change their views uh, from time to time. George Armstrong Custer is one of the uh, um, the most controversial people. You have movies like They Died With Their Boots On with Errol Flynn that makes a hero out of him. And then uh, Little Big Man, produced during the Vietnam War with Dustin Hoffman, makes uh, Custer to be a villain. Uh, so he goes back and forth. Uh, also, uh, recently you've had uh, some uh, interesting uh, proposals dealing with uh, James Longstreet and Robert E. Lee. For example, in this bugle call that some of you may have gotten tonight, um, Gary Gallagher has a very good uh, uh, synthesis of uh, many articles uh, about Robert E. Lee the soldier. And of course, uh, most of us have been taught that Robert E. Lee was an icon and he hardly made a mistake. And uh, this is, comes from the Jubal Early version of uh, Robert E. Lee right after the Civil War was over, right after he died. And, of course, Douglas Southall Freeman. In the last five or ten years, you've had Thomas Connolly's Marble Man, Alan Nolan's uh, Lee Considered, uh, John McKenzie's Uncertain Glory, which challenges some of these basic uh, hypotheses about Lee. 
But uh, Gary Gallagher's book is an excellent book of uh, a series of articles about uh, Robert E. Lee. So there might be somewhat of a change of views of historians about Lee as time goes on. But a lot of different periods and eras are, are made up of uh, Lee's changes. But I don't think any of them are quite as dramatic as the Reconstruction period. Now, uh, how many of you have attended high school before 1965? Okay, most of you. All right, so most of you, I presume, were taught, if you were taught uh, Civil War and Reconstruction at all, you are probably taught with what is called the Dunning School of Interpretation of Reconstruction. And um, probably you don't have a very good image about Reconstruction. You think that Reconstruction was entirely evil and bad and sordid and, and uh, horrible and so on. But the Dunning School was uh, named after William A. Dunning, whose... Uh, main book was called Reconstruction Political and Economic from 1907 and this uh, has this uh, interpretation has far-reaching implications and uh, it was the first major uh, interpretation that uh, many serious historians espoused from let's say 1900 to about 1940. Dunning and his followers presented Reconstruction as a period of unrelieved sordidness and the ultimate shame of the American people. Other books uh, were loaded with these titles such as The Age of Hate, The Tragic Era, and both books are done by professional historians. So they are, uh, they try to point out all the terrible aspects, the evil aspects, the bad aspects about Reconstruction. Uh, the Dunning School has many villains during the aftermath of the Civil War. You have the corrupt uh, politicians in Grant's administration, the crafty carpetbaggers, the uh, degraded uh, traitorous Southern scalawags, who collaborated with the enemy, which was the United States government. Uh, you have the ignorant, barbaric freedmen uh, who threatened to Africanize the South and destroy the uh, white civilization. The radical Republicans, of course, who tried unsuccessfully to give the freedmen their rights and to punish the South severely. So uh, the radicals were probably the uh, central as far as the uh, villains, uh, according to the Dunning School. Claude Bowers uh, was a disciple of Dunning, and in his book, The Tragic Era in 1929, said, and I quote, the years of Reconstruction were years of revolutionary turmoil. The prevailing note was one of tragedy. Never before have American leaders been so brutal, hypocritical, and corrupt. The U.S. Constitution was treated as a doormat on which politicians and army officers wiped their feet after waiting in the muck. The Southern people were put to the torture of nasty conspirators, unquote. So this is, gives you the flavor of some of the uh, first uh, scholarly uh, interpretation of uh, Reconstruction. The Dunningites were a group of serious historians. Dunning was from Columbia University, but he got a lot of he had a lot of graduate students from the South, and he let these graduate students have free reign, and then he'd put their essays in a book, and um, then of course uh, they turned out to be very racist and very partisan, and very biased. In essence, the Dunning's interpretation said that the freedmen were racially inferior and that the South lost on the field but won the peace. Uh, Reconstruction, I think, is one of the few periods of history where the losers get to write the history books. And, uh, you know, the North and Northern historians just sort of gave up. They didn't really have any interest in Reconstruction. They let the Southern interpretation or pro-Confederate interpretation take over and uh, it was very racist, and as a result, uh, this is one of the few times in history when I think that uh, the losers are writing the history books. Usually you get the common comment that the, the winners are writing the history books, 
and that's why that uh, you really can't trust the, uh, the history books about wars. The losers of the Civil War were given uh, the responsibility to write the prevailing history in the case of the Dunningites, or at least they took over the vacuum of it. The Confederate flag became a symbol of honor and heritage because the national memory was dominated by whites. Today, the controversy still remains over the flying of the rebel battle flag, and the Dunning School of Reconstruction Historiography had far-reaching consequences and really was dominant for a period of decades. Uh, to summarize, the Dunning School is based on three major premises. One was good versus evil. Two, the belief that the South would have adjusted very well without any federal inf interference after the Civil War. And third, the belief of, uh, in the innate in inferiority of blacks. And then he had some challenges to Dunning. Uh, in, 18, in 1928, Charles and Mary Beard wrote uh, The Rise of American Civilization, which was a two-volume economic interpretation. And they didn't really challenge the racial inferiority of blacks. They didn't challenge that at all, but they simply said that, uh, uh, that uh, the entire Reconstruction period was a case of the industrial north imposing its values on the agricultural agrarian south, and it was trying to make the agrarian south a mirror image of the uh, industrial north. And so they were talking about protective tariffs and national banks and sound money policies and so on and the fact that a high protective tariff was passed by the United States Congress in 1862. So um, they concluded, the Beards concluded that the freed slaves were not ready for the 13th Amendment, the freedom of, that is, the abolition of slavery. And further, Beard did not deal with a possible land reform because he reasoned that the freedmen did not have enough capital to purchase and maintain uh, these farms. In 1935, you started having more serious challenges to the uh, Dunning School. Um, a major problem with the Dunning School was a complete lack of effort to deal with social problems of the four million freedmen. I have an, a book on essays about uh, the Dunning School and uh, from uh, William Dunning, and there's only about four or five references to the KKK, and they only have a sentence or two about each one in the entire book. So they leave out the KKK and all the terrorism. They leave out anything that might be... Uh, uh, anything good about the Reconstruction, and they only want to point out all the terrible sorted aspects. W.E. Du Bois uh, was a black historian who's uh, written on many aspects of American history. In 1935 he had a book that came out called Black Reconstruction in America 1860 to 1880. He tried to rectify this situation by explaining that you've got to have, uh, you know, you got to write a history about the four million freedmen. They are critical to uh, understanding the uh, Reconstruction period. He, du Bois portrayed Reconstruction as an idealistic effort to construct a democratic interracial political order from the ashes of slavery. He closed his book with a very strong indictment of these professional historians, uh, namely the Dunning School. And I quote, uh, Du Bois says, uh, one fact explains the attitude of recent writers of Reconstruction. They cannot conceive of Negroes as men. Uh, he also was the first historian of any note to talk about uh, possible land reform during Reconstruction. And he said that would be that would have been necessary if the blacks are ever going to uh, rise from the ashes, so to speak, and be on an even playing field with uh, the whites in our country. And in uh, one of the later one of the later chapters, uh, Du Bois asked the question about what is being taught in 1935 textbooks throughout the country, and this is what's being taught uh, according to Du Bois: uh, all Negroes are ignorant, all Negroes are lazy, dishonest, and extravagant. Uh, Negroes were responsible for bad government during Reconstruction. So this is what the uh, younger generation is being taught by the Dunning School. 
um, which of course is extremely racist policies. The book Black Reconstruction anticipated the findings of modern scholarship, but in 1935 it was largely ignored. To summarize Du Bois, uh, quote, the slave went free, the slave stood for a brief woman in the sun, then moved back to slavery again, and he cites, of course, the sharecropping and the tenant farming that most of these slaves had to do after, they, after slavery was done away with. The freedmen oftentimes had no choice. They had no training, they had no land, they, had, uh, they didn't even own uh, uh, any uh, uh, of their clothes on their back, so to speak. And uh, so as a result, uh, to all of a sudden give them their freedom without anything else was uh, very cruel, according to what Du Bois thought. And he thought this was just going back into slavery again. And of course, he also mentioned the KKK terrorism. Um, and also, uh, he mentioned the fact that during Reconstruction, there were some positive successes. For example, uh, in the South, for the first time, uh, poor whites were educated. Public education for both blacks and whites, for the first time, were given to uh, the uh, Southern uh, youngsters during Reconstruction. And this was not mentioned in the Dunning School because that might make Reconstruction somewhat palatable. But uh, public uh, education was provided for both whites and blacks during Reconstruction and uh, this is the first time many of these uh, children ever had any uh, education at all. And then of course uh, as time went on you had more and more people started to point out different uh, aspects about Reconstruction that was positive. And uh, in uh, 1961 uh, there was another edition of uh, J.R. Randall and David Donald's book called uh, Civil War and Reconstruction, which is used in many college classes. Uh, I don't know if it's still used very often, but it's, it was used uh, when I was going to school. And uh, in that book, they quote a Professor Francis Simpkins. Simpkins said, and I quote, During the post-war years, the life of both Negroes and whites in the South remained relatively wholesome and happy. There was little of the misery, hatred, and repression ascribed to it by the Dunning School. While the Dunning School concentrated on the wrongs and oppressions done to Southern whites, the new revisionists, as I call them, starting with this book and uh, several others that I'll mention, they concentrated on the plight of the four million freedmen. Also in 1961, John Hope Franklin wrote his book about Reconstruction after the Civil War, and uh, that's... Uh, interpretation is now pretty well held sway that um, that you have many problems of reconstruction but uh, there are also some successes then in 1965 the book that really got me interested in uh, reconstruction was a book by Kenneth Stamp entitled the era of reconstruction 1865 to 1877 and it really it really opened the doors of reconstruction historiography in this landmark book Stamp, who's a professor of history at the University of California at Berkeley, Stamp admits that much of what the Dunningites stated was correct, that there was a lot of corruption, that there was a lot of uh, pain and suffering and privation done to Southern whites, uh, that uh, the radicals, some radicals at least, were only interested in gaining more Republican votes, and they were very greedy, they were very corrupt uh, in some cases. However, Stamp challenged this lingering view that Reconstruction was only a period of relentless brutality against white Southerners that caused another reaction, and that is the rise of the KKK and the other hate groups that started in Reconstruction. Now, Stamp was totally puzzled by this whole idea about why Reconstruction was uh, sort of like uh, the period of 
being whipped all the time by historians. And uh, why, why did the Dunning School take over control so, uh, uh, in such a large degree? So Stamp asked the question in the first chapter, exactly what makes up this alleged brutality against Southern whites? What makes up this oppression and uh, brutality against Southern whites? And he had a list of six that he could come up with. And here's a list of these six items that, uh, that Stamp came up with uh, that was supposed to be this brutality, this terrible, horrible sordidness and brutality against Southern whites. One, freedom of the slaves, the 13th Amendment. Uh, two, a brief imprisonment of a few Confederate leaders like Jefferson Davis and the execution of Captain Henry Wirtz of Andersonville Prison. Three, Confederate leaders could not vote or run for office for a few years after the Civil War was over. Four, a very weak military occupation, uh, only 20,000 at the end of the Reconstruction period, which did, really didn't effectively protect the freedmen from the KKK. Five, an attempt to extend the rights of citizenship to freedmen with the 14th and 15th Amendments. And six, too many blacks were elected to office in the South. And this was the brutality. Well, just how brutal is that? Uh, just basically giving uh, decent, common constitutional rights to the four million freedmen. And the South, the Southerners didn't want to do, Southern whites didn't want to do that because that would admit that uh, the blacks would be on an equal basis to, with them and they couldn't stand it. Uh, so going down that list, uh, as far as the imprisonment, um, that's, you know, I mean, Jefferson Davis was put in prison. He was actually put into shackles for five or six days, and many Southerners think that was horrible. Uh, he was put into house arrest after that for two years. Um, now, uh, I heard uh, Steve Davis, who's a, uh, a book editor of Blue and Gray magazine, uh, who was very pro-Southern, he, he gave a speech one time uh, that I heard uh, stating that Jefferson Davis was so mistreated. Well, Jefferson Davis was the leader of uh, the Confederate States of America that tried to secede, tried to break away. Many Northerners think that was a very traitorous act activity. And Jefferson Davis was allowed to go around the country after 1877. He made very inflammatory speeches that could be construed anyhow as very inflammatory, uh, very pro-Confederate and so on. He was allowed to uh, travel to Europe. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he lived until uh, 1889. So uh, he wasn't, uh, I don't think that's an extreme punishment of the leader of uh, the opposition in a devastating, terrible, horrible civil war. Um, also, you had this uh, weak military occupation, as I said before, which uh, you know, was not uh, very strong. It didn't really stop the KKK from doing anything. It didn't really protect the Scalawags, carpetbaggers, or the uh, four million freedmen. Uh, one of the... One of the major complaints about uh, Southern whites is the fact that so many blacks were elected to the Reconstruction governments. Well, uh, in the United States Senate from 1865 to 1877, during Reconstruction, there were two blacks elected to the Senate. There were 14 members of the House of Representatives elected to the Senate from, and all this is from the 11 former Confederate states. Uh, only 600, as I mentioned before, only 600 blacks were elected to state offices, which is far below 5%. So yes, some of the blacks that were elected are uneducated and untrained for public office. Some of them were corrupt. But uh, the point is that there were very few percentage-wise that uh, gained any kind of power or any type of control in the, uh, in the South. So really, the white Southerners regained power very quickly as a result of all these different policies. In addition, Stamp in, 1860, in 1965, 
alleged that the Dunning School exaggerated the charges of corruption and ineffectiveness of Southern governments under the blacks, the scalawags and the carpetbaggers. Uh, by the way, I think we should talk a little bit about uh, the Confederate General James Longstreet at this time. Uh, James Longstreet, of course, now has been blamed for the defeat of uh, Gettysburg because he had the idea that they should go take the entire army of Northern Virginia and move south. Uh, he was actually correct, in my opinion. But Robert E. Lee felt, no, the enemy is there. We've got to fight just for the sake of fighting. Let's try to break through the center of the Union line at Cemetery Ridge. And uh, Longstreet is condemned for this because he's reluctant to go along with it. But mainly, I think Longstreet was uh, condemned uh, after the war because he was a scalawag. He worked with the United States officials. And uh, he's uh, blamed by uh, Southern uh, enthusiasts for many other aspects of the Civil War that went wrong. Uh, also, uh, another thing that happened to Longstreet was the fact Longstreet was a police commissioner of New Orleans in 1874. And this didn't help his reputation with the former Confederate leaders or former Confederate soldiers. In 1874, Longstreet was in charge of about 3,500 uh, uh, policemen, or I should say militiamen, in uh, New Orleans. And he was trying to break up some disturbances of ex-Confederate uh, uh, soldiers about 5,000 of them. Uh, there was all kinds of confusion in uh, New Orleans at this time, and uh, the governor was trying to give more rights to the freed blacks. Anyhow, I'll make a long story short, the, all these 3,500 militiamen, or most of them anyhow, were black. They started shooting in the middle of the ex-Confederates. The ex-Confederates shot at them. There were some killed on both sides. And of course, uh, Longstreet, being the police commissioner in charge of militiamen, uh, did not uh, enhance his reputation at all among the uh, Confederate, uh, former Confederate leaders or soldiers. So these are reasons why Longstreet uh, lost his reputation uh, besides the fact that somebody had to be blamed for some of these Confederate defeats besides Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was an icon. He couldn't be criticized for anything. They had to make him uh, almost perfect. Stamp also states that uh, these facts, in order to give the revisionist view more credibility. This is the revisionist of the uh, 1960s. First of all, Stamp says, Lincoln did not have a detailed, coherent plan of reconstruction. Second, Andrew Johnson was perhaps the worst person that possibly could have been president after Lincoln. He was a racist. He was very stubborn, very intransigent. He lacked the ability to compromise when compromise was essentially necessary uh, during reconstruction. And he might have even deserved to be impeached. He might even deserve to be removed. Uh, in the South, especially against Southern whites. And now the new revisionists say the radicals didn't do enough. That the radicals uh, should have had, uh, should have provided more compensation for the four million slaves. Uh, they should provide a land reform, 40 acres and a mule perhaps for the four million uh, freedmen. And they should have uh, had a much stronger occupation in the South to protect the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments rights for these, uh, for these freedmen. Also, the uh, stamp says that the Reconstruction legislation for the 14th and 15th Amendment had broad public support in the North. Also, stamp mentions that uh, there were many positive achievements that existed under Reconstruction that were completely ignored by the Dunning School. I already talked about the fact that you had, uh, for the first time, uh, free public education provided for blacks and whites with the Freedmen's Bureau. A tax reform occurred in the South for the first time. Many planters had to pay a heavier burden, where in the past they had to pay little or no burden of tax. Roads and bridges were built. 
The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed, and uh, they were desperately needed. And uh, their importance came along later with the civil rights uh, movement of the 1960s. But uh, basically, these 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were ruled impotent by uh, the Southern whites because the Southern whites regained control within 10 years or so after uh, the Civil War was over. Also, Stamp mentions that many elected officials in the South uh, replaced appointed positions in the state uh, and county uh, elections. The rights of women for the first time were increased. Divorce laws were accepted uh, in the South for the first time in many cases. Facilities for mentally handicapped and poverty stricken were started. Uh, more democratic elections held without requirement for ownership of property. And all these accomplishments were totally ignored by the Dunning School. The Dunning School was uh, intellectually dishonest, uh, to say the least. And many of these uh, aspects about Reconstruction now have been incorporated in the, historic, in the historiography of Reconstruction. Furthermore, Stamp submitted the view that Reconstruction in the United States is the most difficult Reconstruction of all time. This is the only time in uh, world history when you have the uh, end of a civil war and the beginning of the Reconstruction uh, policies. You have the freedom of four million people and also you have the death of uh, a, uh, a president such as Lincoln. So you have a triple whammy, so to speak. You have three major crises happening at the same time. And if you want to criticize the radicals or criticize uh, some of these policies and so on, you have to understand it is almost impossible to have uh, a, uh, a tremendously uh, significant uh, positive thing going forward. And also every reconstruction policy uh, every Reconstruction uh, has some corruption, er, total uh, uh, chaos in some cases. So after a devastating civil war, you're, all, you're always going to have some turmoil and, and some corruption. Um, Stamp's uh, revisionist views pretty well hold to the present day for the, first, for the most part. You still have the views that there was some corruption, there was uh, all kinds of problems in the South. Uh, we're not saying the Dunning School was entirely incorrect or false but uh, that there was a lot of other things that they left out. Uh, when one compares the era of Reconstruction, one should also compare Reconstruction with other periods of American history. Um, and uh, also, beyond that, with other periods of Reconstruction in other countries after civil wars. What we've done, I think, basically, is to compare Reconstruction with other periods of American history and say this is the worst time in American history ever. And, of course, I think maybe the Great Depression and the Vietnam War uh, might... Uh, uh, be somewhat comparable to terrible periods of American history. But um, I, uh, when I was in college, I read a book called The Anatomy of a Revolution by Crane Britton. And basically, he took all the different characteristics of uh, revolution, and for one of his major hypotheses was the American Revolution was not very revolutionary compared with the French Revolution or uh, Russian Revolution or some of these other revolutions. So um, I think what you have to do is to compare the Reconstruction period with other Reconstruction periods in other countries after their devastating civil wars. Uh, for example, um, in uh, England they had the Civil War of the 1640s. Charles I was beheaded. Cromwell takes over for about 12, what is, Cromwell and his men take over for about 12 years. Then Charles II takes over in, the, uh, in 1661. Uh, but there's a lot of bloodletting going on. In the French Revolution, what happened during the terror? Well, you had uh, roughly 30,000 people being executed. And you compare that with the, with the Reconstruction during the Civil War, 
where they had one Confederate uh, officer executed, and that was Henry Wirtz of Andersonville. Uh, what about Russia in 1917? How did the communists deal with the Reconstruction period after the uh, communists take over in November of 1917? Well, you had all kinds of bloodletting. What happened to Nicholas and Alexandra? What happened to their family? What happened to the White Army? It was completely destroyed. Uh, China in 1949, you had... Uh, with Mao Zedong, he had maybe 20 million executed as a result of the uh, Chinese uh, communists taking over against the uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese. So when you compare the American Reconstruction period after the American Civil War, there was not a whole lot of bloodletting going on. There was not a, a you know, there was it was a very lenient, very mild Reconstruction period by contrast with these other Reconstruction periods. Or as I was told one time, we should call those uh, destruction periods uh, in these other countries, where in the United States, uh, even though things didn't work out perfectly, they tried to reconstruct the country as well as they could. Um, so when you, when you uh, have the comparisons like that, there really isn't any comparison. The reconstruction period in the United States was done in a very lenient, tolerant, mild fashion, contrary to what most of us were taught when we were in high school and college. Um, also, was there any land reform in the United States uh, during the Reconstruction period? Well, maybe 20,000 acres, and that was in land that was not very uh, usable. But uh, they did have land reform after some of these other uh, civil wars in Russia and China, uh, for example. Um, also, um, in arguing that uh, the Reconstruction period was very mild, I would argue that just look at what happens to all these uh, reunions of rebel and Yankee troops after the Civil War is over. All of you have seen pictures of Joshua Chamberlain talking with uh, his rebel counterparts at the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen when the Communist Chinese and Nationalist Chinese get uh, together in a couple years. Uh, I don't think there's any Nationalist Chinese left in China. Um, what about the, uh, there's a, many of you have seen this video, the 75th anniversary of uh, Gettysburg, where uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, make, goes to Gettysburg and makes a speech, I believe, in 1938. And there's a few surviving rebel and Yankee soldiers, and they're shaking hands, and they've, uh, and many of them have uh, written letters back and forth over the period of time. But I submit to you, that's not going to happen in any of these other uh, uh, periods of uh, aftermath of civil wars. It's just not going to happen. Also, I submit that the United States had the fairest amnesty of all Reconstruction uh, periods uh, compared with these other countries. Uh, these, uh, you know, the amnesty for the defeated rebel soldiers and former Confederate leaders uh, was uh, very fair. Uh, only one Confederate officer was executed, and he may or may not have deserved it. Uh, the rebels, many rebels after Appomattox kept their horses, went back and started farming. Uh, the soldiers could vote uh, in most cases if they supported the United States government. Um, so I think that uh, this is a very lenient period of, uh, of, of Reconstruction compared to other countries and uh, the aftermath of uh, civil wars. Also, uh, in hindsight, uh, I have a few things to talk about here. How could Reconstruction have been more successful? And uh, this is, uh, these are some ideas that I've come up with. What should have been done during Reconstruction to make, it, to make our racial situation or make our situations today uh, much more successful? Uh, I compare Reconstruction with the Great Depression in that both periods 
in my opinion, needed massive infusion of federal government aid. Many in the 1930s got aid from FDR's New Deal. Actually, FDR was, was fairly conservative, if you look at it. He didn't want to go very far. He was certainly not a socialist or anything. But he's basically just going to try things out. He was a pragmatist. Try it. If it worked, keep on doing it. If it didn't work, get rid of it and try something else. But uh, I think in the uh, Reconstruction period, you needed some uh, uh, massive government aid. For example, let's have the Freedmen's Bureau, instead of it lasting only two years, maybe make it last uh, ten years or so. Um, du Bois said that the Freedmen's Bureau should be continued indefinitely. Well, as soon as it gets started in 1865, it should be continued forever and ever. Uh, I don't agree with that, but uh, certainly uh, these uh, freedmen needed some help in some cases. Uh, the freedmen needed some help in the uh, form of either compensation or else land reform. Uh, Sherman had this uh, idea of 40 acres and a mule, which of course never reached uh, any kind of fruition. But uh, the uh, freedmen needed either a stipend of compensation, let's say $1,000, or they needed 40 acres and a mule. They needed some economic uh, ties so that they could have a half a chance to get back into normal society as soon as possible. Um, so this is just my opinion about that. Also, perhaps uh, the federal government could have low interest loans and northern banks could have provided uh, low interest loans uh, to the freedmen and to poor southern whites um, to encourage uh, farming and also to, inform and to encourage the beginning of business. Uh, as it is, even today, very few black, there are very few black businesses in the country. Uh, either, uh, okay, then another thing is I think that the marshals and the law enforcement personnel in the United States Army should have been uh, much stronger in numbers and also in law enforcement to require the protection of the 13th, 14th Amendment for the freedmen, protect the scalawags and the carpetbaggers much more than they did. Rather than uh, at the end of the Reconstruction period, they were sending more and more U.S. troops to fight the Indians. And also in 1877, they had the first strike. So the United States government started to support uh, big business and started to break up these various strikes. Since the United States government did not really help the 4 million blacks economically during Reconstruction, today we still have the problems fostered by Reconstruction. For example, uh, we have a huge disparity between income for blacks and whites. Uh, Tom Wicker wrote a book about welfare recently, and he said there's always been a situation in this country where at least 50% of all the blacks are under the poverty level. At least 50% are under the poverty level at all times. And so sooner or later, I think we're going to have to uh, rectify this situation. Obviously, the blacks have to take the initiative and, and uh, develop uh, a better work ethic. But uh, this uh, simply can't go on indefinitely without the whole thing uh, boiling over, in my opinion. Also, um, uh, in today's society, we have a lack of adequate housing and education in the inner cities. Uh, we have the whole question of welfare that's uh, being questioned. And I have to admit that I thought that this uh, new welfare bill, the Welfare Act, was going to be devastating and there would be some starvation and so, and so on. That hasn't happened. So uh, if the conservatives can uh, point out that they can get well, rid of welfare and we can get everybody off the welfare rolls and get more stimulation for business. I think that's great. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't care who has the answers, but I just want to, so our society to uh, improve tremendously. Also, possible solutions 
such as open housing laws, integration, job quotas, and affirmative action laws have been brought into question and possibly are ineffective. We have to uh, constantly challenge ourselves about how do we get the blacks of this country to be on an equal playing field with the whites. And uh, I don't have all the answers. I really don't have any of the answers. I'm not a politician, but uh, we're going to have to do better than we have done, I think. However, all Americans must live up to the promise that all men are created equal. As Du Bois once said, I quote, all of us are related to the splendid failure of Reconstruction, end quote. To summarize, instead of viewing Reconstruction as an absolute, total, abysmal failure like the Dunningites, I think the radical Reconstruction had some mild successes, and uh, it's always easy to uh, judge uh, a historical period from hindsight. Perhaps the country would have benefited from a stronger, more coherent Reconstruction policy, but the radicals and their countrymen did fairly well in a social experiment that we call Reconstruction, especially under the extreme crises that they had to deal with. The remnants of Reconstruction continue this very day, as it is one of the most important periods of American history, inextricably intertwined with the Civil War. Reconstruction, along with the Civil War, defines the United States of America as a nation. Like it or not, we who, are, we who were uh, as Americans during the Civil War and Reconstruction has much to do with who we are today. Thank you for your attention.